Welcome to another episode of Trinity College Dublin Talks. I'm Tom Malloy, and, and with me today is Professor Brendan Kelly, a psychiatrist in the medical uh, school in, here in Trinity, who has a very interesting specialism, happiness. Brendan's recently written a book about it, The Science of Happiness, and has spent many years researching this from many different angles. Uh, Brendan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. Before we get into what I hope will be quite a, a kind of a practical and applied conversation about about how we can kind of mind our happiness and indeed be more happy, if that isn't kind of a, a vain pursuit, we might just talk a little bit about your your academic background because it's incredibly varied, incredibly. Uh, I, I don't quite know how you fitted it all in. So you're from Galway and, and you studied medicine in Galway, but but after that, can you can you tell us what you did? Well, yes, um, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist, which means a medical doctor specialising in the treatment of, of mental illness. And I did my undergraduate medical studies in NUI Galway. This was followed by an MD or doctorate in medicine, again, based in Galway. Um, but my interests became very broad. So I, I went off and I did a master's in epidemiology at the University of London, a master's in management at the Institute of Public Administration in Dublin, and then of all things, a master's in Buddhist studies uh, through the University of Sunderland. Um, what happened there? Why did you, why did you, I suppose so far predictable enough, you know, that's perhaps what you'd expect a, a doctor to do, and then management is part of everybody's life these days. But then Buddhism studies is is quite a departure. What what was going on there? Well, you're absolutely right. So far, it was you know up to that point was very predictable, and that was in some senses the issue. And um, so I just uh, I became interested in mindfulness and the way that mindfulness is commonly presented nowadays as a solution to more or less everything. Um, but of course, it has a very rich Buddhist heritage, and that prompted my interest in um, Buddhist studies to see where this came from and you know what you know what what the roots of mindfulness really were and but it was linked with my interest in psychiatry and mental health and happiness as were my later studies looking at the if you like the, the human rights and me and mental health law I, I did a phd in law at the university of leicester and a phd in history in northampton but again the history was looking at the history of psychiatry how we have thought about mental illness, how we have treated people who are mentally ill and so forth. So there is some thematic continuity in what can look like a, a sort of a, a rainbow colored um, CV to date. It's really all about mental health, mental illness and how we've thought about these things in the law, in history, in religion and in psychology as well. And did you find it difficult to to jump between these uh these kind of different disciplines. I mean, many people who, are, who studied history at an undergraduate level, for instance, would, would balk at doing a PhD in history. And yet this is only one of many uh, strings to your bow. Um, I mean, what, was that a very difficult thing to do cognitively? Um, no, I mean, it was, it, it, these were tapping into different, different uh, bits of my brain, if, I, if you want me to be wildly unscientific about it. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, they were quite different things. They were thematically linked, but they were they were interesting. And I'll tell you, writing theses and writing papers and writing books, the, the, in fact, the most 
important skill I learned um, in all of that is learning how to type. When I was very young, my my parents wisely sent me to secretarial mm. school mm. in the evenings. So like years ago, I was able to type 50 or 60 words a minute, uh, touch typing. And I, I have to say that is probably um, the, the best bit of all the educations that I've received um, is the ability to type, which has, of course, become uh, ever more important as we become increasingly reliant on computers and various devices. But all of the studies were fundamentally about mental health, mental Ill illness, and happiness and how to be happy. And and but unlike most of your 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 colleagues in psychiatry, I think it's fair to say, uh, you you focus more on happiness than on mental illness, uh, and and that seems to be kind of the area that you're you're most driven by. It's very kind of I think this is part of a trend though, isn't it, in psychiatry in psychiatry to think more about things that work rather than ask oneself why things didn't work. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, there is a big movement towards look, focusing not only on pathology or problems or symptoms, but also looking at resilience and strength and uh, preventive uh, medicine, if you will, or preventive uh, lifestyle measures or ways of thinking about the positive as well as when necessary, thinking about the negative and symptoms. If you like, balancing a focus on function and things going well, in addition to dysfunction and things not going well. These aren't quite the opposites that they sound like, so it's good to look at each of them separately. And all the research in recent decades about happiness is, is taking that side of it, looking at function and ability and happiness and flourishing and how we can uh, promote that. Let's uh, let's kind of maybe use the structure of your of your book in a way, uh, the science of happiness, because you offer six principles for a happy life, and and seven strategies to get there, which which seems kind of uh, uh, like a, a nice structure. Can we talk about some of those principles? I mean, what 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 do you think are the the principles for a happy life? Well, uh, the key, the six principles that I uh, write about are uh, balance, uh, love, acceptance and gratitude, avoiding comparisons and belief. And, and so there, there are six things. And I think the first one is is balance. And it's that means trying to achieve moderation. And for this, I look a lot to Taoism which is a philosophical tradition mainly rooted in China to do with uh, maybe uh, harmony as well as balance. And, you know, Taoism, uh, to, to summarize it in a nutshell, uh, refers to the Tao or the way. And it says that, you know, nature and the world has a way. And the more in harmony we are with that, the the happier we will be and the more we will thrive. I suppose at its simplest, it means sort of being aware of, of nature and the seasons and seasonality, but also noting that, you know, that, that there are uh, patterns, tides in the affairs of humans, if you will. Um, and when we accord with those, uh, there is greater happiness. So it's to do with a 
you know, they say, uh, to quote the Tao Te Ching, which is one of the texts, it's, uh, it, they say, you know, yielding is the way of the Tao, uh, returning is the movement of the Tao. Um, so being in balance with the various uh, forces in our worlds and our lives and our minds and our bodies, that's what I put, I give us the first of six principles, which is balance. So is that accepting that you change as you age and, and paying close attention to the world as it revolves around its axis and the seasons come? Or, or am I being too kind of literal and unimaginative here? Is it, is it a, a bigger thing, do you think? Well, it's, 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 something, of, it's something of a bigger thing. And um, the idea of humility is very important. Mm that we can shape certain things in our lives, but we cannot shape everything. And it does, it, it brings us on to sort of another of the six principles, which is acceptance, as you correctly point out. And there, you know, there's a, a form of psychological therapy recently been articulated called acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's based on accepting certain things and committing to change other things and you know happiness lies in the you know which category we put things into so you know say for me i i'm aged 47 and there are certain things i need to accept i need to accept that i am never going to win an olympic medal in anything it was never high on my agenda but it, it's simply not going to happen but i can commit to certain kinds of change in my life that are positive things i can control and can do and that's another of the six principles and it, it's similar to balance but it's more focused on accepting what we cannot change and changing what we can and how should people approach that acceptance should they i mean it sounds like you need to have kind of talks with yourself uh, and, and and shed the kind of unrealistic expectations that might have stick with the medal thing possibly when one was younger these were realistic aspirations but they no longer are but you've got to what sit down and kind of talk to yourself and <clears throat> excuse me and tell, tell oneself not to think like this anymore or? yes i mean th there's a there's a couple of things it's good to be aware of if you like the mistakes we make in our thinking so for example, I'm a doctor, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a professor of psychiatry, and it crosses my mind from time to time I might be happier if I was something else. And I think of all the things that I could be. I could be the captain on a ship, I could be a, a you know, an airline pilot, I could uh, maybe, uh, you know, try to go into politics or something like that. But what I'm doing there is I'm comparing one thing, what I am, with everything else that I could have been. If I was one of them, I would have had to pick one of those and not all of them, if you know what I mean. So mm. when we're thinking about acceptance, we need to be realistic about what the alternatives might have been. And the other big point about acceptance, and it's a very useful exercise, is to think about your frame of reference. So for example, when I look at my life, there might be things I want to change. But if I expand my frame of reference and think about my community or my society, I might think, well, there's a lot that's really, really good in my life. So acceptance isn't that bad. And if we expand more broadly. Um, so, for example, many people listening to this uh, podcast will be in the 6% of the world's population who have reliable access to food, shelter and the Internet. And I think the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has really brought home the disparities. So when I have difficulty accepting my life, if I reframe it into that really big frame, the frame of all humanity, or as Buddhism would say, the frame of all sentient beings, not just humans, mm. then 
with that context makes it easier for me to accept some of the things that I might regard as problems, but really are very, very minor. Is it really only 6% of the world that has access to regular food and internet? Yes, 6% of the world has reliable access to food, shelter and internet. And it's shockingly lower, right, isn't it? Isn't it absolutely extraordinary? And you see what, what that, that statistic has already done to you, Tom. It, it has contextualized things and just given you something that, that might cross your mind again later on today, which is mm. really important. You mentioned also, if I'm remembering it, you, uh, commitment and belief were two of the other ones. Let's let's think about commitment for a second. What, what, what does that include? Well, you know, committing to something, uh, something that you believe in, um, gives us meaning. We, you know, as humans, we search for meaning. We struggle very much with the idea that life is entirely random and mm. we like to commit to ideas. And, you know, why we decide to commit can be a little bit irrational, but uh, it means a lot when we do. The, the two kinds of belief that I talk about are religion and politics. And we know that um, while many religions, uh, you know, they, they, they almost all preach about peace and love, but many are associated also with guilt and intolerance. But we know, and there's very strong research evidence that committing to a religion increases happiness. And it used to be thought this was because religion brought with it community. You would you would go to worship, you'd be in community groups, you'd link up with people. But it appears that the happiness or well-being with religion comes from belief, core belief, faith uh, makes us happy. And the other kind of belief I write about in the book is politics. And this has been it's studied. Well, that's bad news, really, for agnostics, isn't it? It's 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 not going to church or mosque or synagogue. It's. And, and it's, it's, you've actually got to believe you can't just do the social thing. No, it's not just the social thing. The, the, the belief is important, finding something to believe in. Now, it's possible religion isn't unique in this regard, if you know what I mean, that mm. believing in something else, like if you have a person who believes let us say in uh, how will I put uh, environmental matters with the intensity of someone who believes in a particular religion. It is possible that that might serve the same psychological and emotional function. But belief is what's needed. Right. OK. And, and is commitment the close sister of belief? Is it something is it commitment to those beliefs or is it commitment to something else? Well, it's both commitment to beliefs, but commitment also brings a certain amount of action. And in other words, acting upon what you believe. And we, we come across this again for another of the principles, which is gratitude. So a lot of people speak about gratitude and being thankful for what we have. And that's tremendously important. But there is strong evidence now that grateful actions, in other words, doing things to express that gratitude, saying thank you to people, sending notes, sending gifts, um, adds to the happiness that gratitude brings. So if you like, commitment is like belief in motion or in action. It's, it's a demonstration to yourself as much as anybody else that you believe what you believe and that you will take action. And this makes us happier. That's very interesting because one, one, one often sees kind of in articles that people should keep kind of gratitude lists and every day they should say their grat 
grateful for this or that. But you're, you're, you're saying it slightly different. You're saying it's not enough to say it to yourself, really. You've got to go out and kind of actively thank people. And that that, that is the, the key here, is it? Yes, yes, yes. Take, taking grateful actions. Um, you mm. see, making a list of six things you're grateful for every day doesn't really work because, to be entirely honest, there mightn't be six things someday. <laughs> there, there might only be one thing. But if you are grateful for that one thing and you take steps to express or demonstrate that gratitude, that can be far better than listing, you know, six things, five of which, to be honest, you're not really grateful for. You're just doing them to fill out the list. And that that undermines the whole thing. But the actions, the grateful actions, uh, far from undermining gratitude, they underpin it and they amplify its benefits. And I think the the, the, the last kind of principle we haven't talked about is love. Um, what, what, what are the lessons around love? Well, the big story with love is that the idea of love has has been essentially hijacked by uh, romantic love in literature. It's got all the best songs, all the best movies. They're all about romantic love. So down with romantic love. Then. Down with romantic love. Precisely. Well, it has its place. But what I'm interested <laughs> in is, yeah, it does, is, is, is uh, love uh, for yourself and you know, the idea of self-esteem is both important, but also a little bit pernicious mm. because it suggests that one's esteem can be somehow measured. A much better idea is self-acceptance. This idea that you are lovable and filled with as much value as is possible by simple virtue of the fact that you exist. There's no nothing to be measured, nothing to be assessed, nothing, nothing to be discussed, uh, that you are deserving of love and self-compassion just because there you are. Nothing else is needed. So love for yourself is something uh, that I talk about a great deal and there's a lot of evidence we could work on self-compassion. Not the idea uh, alone, but you know, this inner voice, this inner critic we have that criticizes ourselves so many times per day. We're, we might want to have self-compassion, but our inner voice is so critical and negative that it doesn't work out in practice. So we start with that. And yes, of course, romantic love is important, but also love for other things, love for our communities, love for our planet, even love for our country. Um, but just not only romantic love, there are other kinds of love which at different phases of our lives can be more reliable and particularly uh, self-love or self-compassion. And perhaps it's good for us not to be loved back. You can, I suppose, love your country, but your country can't can't love you. I, I've always struggled with this one a bit, though. I mean, does it not make people insufferable if they have high levels of self-esteem? Yeah, self-esteem is 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 very very problematic as a concept. Um, and uh, you know, I, I don't think you can have too much self-love if it is a genuine sort of love for who you are, and it's balanced by you know, uh, love and compassion for other people. And part of that compassion is not always going on about yourself to other people, but just, you know, being quietly assured of your own value and not letting your value be a chip on the table. It, it, it's a non-negotiable thing uh, in your head or in your heart or wherever. Um, it's not it's not up for grabs and whatever is happening in your life, whatever you do or don't do or your friends say or don't say um, that your self regard, your self acceptance and your self love, your self compassion is 
solid. It is a non-negotiable thing that's not up for discussion at any point. I think I should have, in retrospect, started this conversation with the with that difficult question, which is, how are we defining happiness, or or is there is there a definition of happiness that that is kind of useful? Well, this is one of the fascinating things about, and this is where the title of my book comes from: the science of happiness. Is it even possible to have a science of happiness? Because what I understand by happiness could be incredibly different to what you understand. Mm. And if I'm happy now, it could change in five minutes. If it's raining as I cycle home, I could suddenly feel acutely unhappy. So the question is, how can we ever study such a thing? And all the research that the data that we analyze and that the book is based upon are large studies that ask thousands or tens of thousands of people a very simple question, which is, how happy are you? on a scale of zero to 10. Zero is very unhappy, 10 is very happy, and people are asked to rate themselves. Now, this is a little problematic because if I give myself seven, and if you give yourself seven, Tom, they could be completely different sevens. What you know, It could mean different things, but the research overcomes this by asking, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people this question and looking to see are there reliable patterns that indicate validity. And of course, the other benefit of uh, studying happiness by asking people this question is you're getting the, the rating of happiness that matters. So, Tom, if I rated your happiness and told you you were eight out of 10, that doesn't mean anything. The mm. only measurement that matters is your happiness from zero to 10. That makes a lot of sense, all right. Um, I mean, there are some trends out there that are pretty, pretty firm throughout the world. Uh, one, one trend is that it seems to change over time, uh, and 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 there seems to be a trough in middle age. And the and the other the other trend is that in some countries, seem to in every survey of happiness seem to have high scores. I'm thinking of the Scandinavian countries, for instance. Is there something we can learn there? Well, there certainly is. I mean, happiness and age is very, uh, you know, very consistent. You know, there have been large surveys in more than 130 countries that show consistent trends in, in pretty much all countries, no exceptions to this one, that people tend to start out life happy. Now, there are exceptions, obviously, but broadly speaking, we start out life happy. We become steadily more unhappy in our 20s, our 30s. The low point is in the mid 40s. 47 is the low point, and that's my age right now, as it turns out. And then after 47, the average happiness starts to increase in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And if we survive in good health into our 80s, chances are we'll be happier than ever before. And the reason for this seems to be that the mid 40s are a time when a lot of stresses, if you like, come together. We have people working in careers, either being promoted, which is stressful or not, which is also stressful. There are mortgages to be paid or if not, people who are still renting and can't get into the housing market. Again, very stressful. And then, and I'm going to choose my words very carefully here, Tom, there are children who are, for the record, because this is a recording, children who are a very great joy. Just to be absolutely clear, they are an enormous joy. However, 
they also bring certain responsibilities and burdens. And for many people, all of these factors come together in their mid 40s, making this the time of greatest unhappiness in most people's lives. I've, uh, <coughs> I've read, not in your book, but uh, that uh, people without children tend to be happier and people with children tend to live longer. Is that is that correct? <laughs> It, it depends where you live. Right. In, in Ireland and the US, uh, for example, uh, non-parents, people who don't have children, are happier than parents. But in certain other countries, uh, for example, Portugal and Hungary, parents are happier than non-parents. And this seems to reflect very pragmatic factors like um, flexible working arrangements, uh, paid parental leave, uh, equality both at work and in the home. Um, and this, this also changes over time. When you look at adults in later life, um, um, parents, sorry, non-parents um, in later life, say in, this, in their 60s, non-parents are happier than parents whose children are still living at home, who have adult children at home. But the happiest of all are parents whose adult children have left. So uh, if, if you like, children, children bring great joy. I just want to have that on the record again, but it's a little more nuanced. And there comes a time when, when, when they need to start their own lives. And, and that seems to make everybody happier. So, so anyone listening here who's feeling a bit uh, annoyed with life uh, and they're in their mid 40s to, to mid 50s, uh, the message is perhaps things are things are about to about to improve, or maybe if you're in your early 40s, get a bit worse before they improve. But but uh, that's the, the the usual pattern seen in societies everywhere. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, think things begin to pick up after the mid 40s. Now, of course, no, none of these findings are absolute. And, and you know, people go to trends and life will send events that, you know, make people happier or less happy. But an understanding of these trends can be very helpful, particularly for people in their 40s who are coming to terms with a lot of stuff like, um, you know, like this is this is it. This is this is your career and a, or, you know, a, a great deal of what you're going to achieve in life. This 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 might be it. And and you're working constantly and, and there's a mortgage that doesn't seem to shift for decades. And um, it, it can just feel like being a hamster on a wheel. But this is part of the cycle of life. It's maybe part and of the Brendan, way we've it, arranged it. Is it different for men and women? Does is there kind of a gender difference here? Yeah, tr tr traditionally in these kinds of surveys, women have always rated themselves as happier than men rated themselves. But in the past two decades, the, those lines have converged. In other words, the happiness of women has declined somewhat and the happiness of men increased somewhat. And now I think men are probably, we, we, we men probably rate ourselves slightly happier than women rate themselves. Okay. Talk to me about why some countries are always seem to be happier than others. I'm thinking of the, the Danes and the Swedes and so on and the Finns who, who always seem to be at the top of all these surveys. Not interestingly, 
the Norwegians, even though they have um, a lot of money coming out of the ground in the, in the shape of oil. What, what are those societies doing right? Well, I mean, these are very, very reliable findings. They come again and again, as you point out, that Scandinavian countries dominate the top five and the top ten when in in the world happiness surveys which are which are available online and they report studies from about 150 countries each year it's easier to explain the bottom of the table countries like afghanistan where there is serious poverty political instability and many many social problems um with regard to the top end of the table it's worth noting uh, the scandinavian countries are wealthy that uh, seems uh, you know, to be necessary to a point. They are more, they have greater equality going on. They tend to have bigger government with bigger social safety nets. And they have, if you like, um, somehow they're, 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 the culture or history links social responsibilities with rights. And you, you see this in all kinds of ways. For example, the use of public space and is quite different in many of these countries compared to the sort of use of public space in less less happy countries. So there's greater mutuality or social capital evident, both through the welfare state and also through how they use their spaces. And that's got that. That's well, something what does that mean, culture. Brendan? Like they have parks or, or what common kind of squares or, 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 or kind of coastline belongs to everyone, beaches or how should I understand that? Well, it's it's you see, this is the issue, Tom. It's actually quite difficult to explain. It's one of those floating cultural concepts. But let, let's let's just say that shared spaces, be they streets with with bicycle lanes or parks, um, which are kept in better shape, there's there's a greater respect for you know the the commons, the the, the common area. So you'll be familiar with the tragedy of the commons, which basically says that any shared resource will tend to be disproportionately exploited by a few who have access to it. That appears to occur less in those countries than it might occur, for example, in Ireland or elsewhere, where common resources tend to be mined disproportionately by certain people. It's a little difficult, I suppose, to describe. It's easier to point to their political stability and their relative wealth the uh, relatively large government and social welfare provisions, the greater degree of equality and support for meaningful equality in the home and in the workplace. All of these things appear to contribute to um, to why people in Finland, the world's happiest country, apparently, why people in Finland rate themselves so highly when they're asked to rate their happiness. Mm. We've talked about, I suppose, some of the indirectly in the way some of the ways one, one, one can be happy perhaps live in countries where where um, public goods are shared shared fairly but, but let's come back to the individual the the, the human being um, what, what what strategies can we adopt as individuals beyond the principles that, that you outlined to 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 be happier basically to, to increase our happiness well, in, in, the, in, in the book, I outline seven strategies for happiness. And I guess the first one is sleep. We, you know, we need more sleep. We do not sleep enough. And everyone listening here, we need more sleep. You basically cannot sleep too much. And um, 
You can optimize the circumstances for sleep. I go, I go through lists of things. We need to value sleep and realize that it nourishes us right through the day. It's, uh, and that the second of the seven strategies is dreaming. I'm very interested in dreaming, and I, I think, you know, dreams. Do you mean daydreaming or dreaming in your sleep now, Brendan? I mean both, and I discuss both, yeah. both in the book. I mean, dreaming while asleep used to be hugely valued. Um, but less so now. And I, I do think that's a pity because there's a lot of evidence that while we dream, our brains are extremely active and they're, it's been described as a form of overnight therapy. And it's good to think about our dreams, but not be obsessed about understanding them point by point. Daydreams um, are similar. Again, um, They've done uh, MRI studies, brain imaging studies about what our brains are doing while we daydream. And it appears that the areas focused on autobiographical memory and the areas focused on future planning and complex problem solving. So autobiographical memory, future planning and complex problem solving are very active when we're daydreaming. So our brains are basically telling us when we daydream, they're telling us that they have more important things to be doing than whatever tedious meeting we're currently attending. And <laughs> I'm, I'm in the book, I highly recommend daydreaming um, to get you through those difficult me meetings because our brains know how to prioritize stuff. Now, don't daydream while you're driving or flying an airplane, but you know, there are certain meetings that it's perfectly acceptable and even healthy to let your brain wander off in whatever uh, peculiar direction it seems to want because it is more active while daydreaming than it is while doing routine tasks like filling in forms. It, it, there's something going on. Mm. OK, so sleep, get, get lots of sleep, good quality sleep, dream, dream both during the day and at sleep. What, what other... What other strategies can we adopt? Well, the next the next two um, are um, eating and uh, I suppose exercising. We do need to watch our diets, not in enormous detail. Uh, most diets uh, are uh, faddish and unhelpful and even unhealthy. So we should um, have a generally balanced diet, avoid fads and, you know, <laughs> rediscover hunger as a way of prompting us to eat. We tend to eat according to a pattern and I'm, I'm actually yeah. dreadful for this. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm practically institutionalized in my own life. And if I don't have <laughs> if I don't have breakfast within minutes of waking, I start to feel faint. And that's utterly ridiculous because, you know, uh, a wait of 30 minutes couldn't possibly do me any harm. But uh, so rediscovering hunger and also seasonality and ideally connection with food. So things like gardening or having an allotment can help make food into, you know, an integrated part of our lives, part of how we exist rather than um, a problem to be solved, which, it, you know, diet often is seen as a problem, but it shouldn't be. It should be more intuitive. And I write about various ways to make that happen. The next, obviously, diet goes hand in hand with exercise and the evidence is very clear for physical exercise. It's good for mental health and we need to do 150 minutes of vigorous physical exercise every week. That's 150 minutes of exercise that makes you perspire. That can be fast walking, 
running, uh, anything you like, once you're physically active and you're perspiring for uh, say 30 minutes, five days a week, that's plenty. Now, if you're doing more exercise than that, I don't know what you're doing because there isn't necessarily a health benefit to it. Um, but many people do more for specific reasons. They want to mean something if they can run a marathon in a certain time. It means something to some people if they have biceps like tree trunks, but we shouldn't mistake these things necessarily for being healthy. 150 minutes of moderately vigorous exercise per week and you're getting uh, pretty much all the health benefits exercise is going to bring you. Very good. Um, is there anything else we can do? Yes, indeed. Um, I write in the book about connecting with other people, which is important, but also disconnecting from them, putting the mobile phone in the boot of the car at 8 p.m. at night, and not taking it out till the following morning is a good strategy. But do you most... really believe then that mobile phones and, and, and the connected world that we, we all enjoy at the moment, that that, that is actively contributing to unhappiness? Mobile phones have given us the power to compare ourselves with other people. So things like social media and scrolling through uh, various um, social media platforms allow us to compare ourselves with other people and um, do so implicitly and quickly at a pace that was never before possible. And we can't resist that. The social comparison is, is irresistible. So mm. what we need to do is place some kind of physical barrier between us and doing that. Um, we, you know, our phones are so powerful because they represent social connection that we need to work hard to manage it. Um, and particularly with younger people. And it's useful for children and teenagers to regard their phones as a city street. In other words, you wouldn't leave a child unattended in the middle of a city street with strangers flowing past. And we need to regard phones as precisely the same thing for children. So connecting is important and physical connecting is something the pandemic has really highlighted uh, its importance for us and how much we need physical as well as electronic connection. So when I write about connecting and disconnecting, I'm really thinking we need a shift toward physical connection and the, the things that only physical presence can bring um, as soon as the public health guidelines, um, of course, permit that kind of thing again. Tell me, we're, we're running out of time, unfortunately, because there's a lot of things I'd like to ask you about, but I'm, I'm going to, as a kind of final question, it strikes me that that uh, uh, a lot of modern life, uh, it, especially in the way it's portrayed in, in the media, it, you know, it centers around um, the pursuit of love and money. And these are two things really, and I, I mean by love, I mean romantic love. These are two things you've uh, very much downplayed. Um, are they completely false gods, do you think, in the in the pursuit of happiness, or do they play a role? Or what, what, what do these what do these two things uh, mean? Well, with regard to money, we need a certain amount of money in order to have a real prospect of happiness. But uh, having an income you know, above um, approximately 80,000 euros a year does not bring significant additional happiness. Um, 
you know, and it, the, the threshold could be lower for certain kinds of happiness, like positive emotions. Um, so money helps, but there's a limit. The issue of romantic love is really interesting because it brings such happiness to so many people, but the pursuit of it and the deification of it is problematic. Uh, we see it in media all the time. Practically all popular music is about love, um, but that kind of love. So it is there is a disproportionate emphasis and it's it's not good because so much of our society is based upon it. When you look at, say, uh, romantic love and marriage, it's often the basis for a property ownership, for financial affairs, pension planning. That's a lot of pressure to place on a romantic relationship, but we have built our society to place those pressures. But so it's good to be aware of that. But I guess the final piece of advice that's in the book is what I call losing yourself, which is realizing that an awful lot of these dilemmas are as old as humankind itself. And one of the ways to cultivate day-to-day -day happiness is to have an activity that absorbs you. I, you know, mindfulness meditation is a great one for focusing you on the moment, but so is running, so is swimming, so is spending time with pets and gardening. Having an activity that absorbs you so that you forget about romantic love and income, you forget about comparisons with other people, you can even forget about the pandemic for a little while and spending an hour or maybe two or maybe three if time, if you get into a state of flow, that is one of the key happiness behaviors, finding an activity that absorbs you so that issues like romantic love or finances and various worries are suspended for an hour or two as you swim or you run or you jog or whatever. Um, and that is perhaps the greatest key to happiness. Um, the uh, writer Thoreau, whom I quote in the book, says, happiness is like a butterfly. The more you seek it, the more it will elude you. But if you turn your attention to other things, it will come and sit softly on your shoulder. So that's unfortunately Thoreau and not me who said that, that ha happiness is like a butterfly. And you know, when you pursue it, it always escapes. But if you sit quietly and get absorbed in the moment, just being in the moment, happiness like the butterfly might simply arrive. Brilliant, Kelly. Thank you very much indeed for, for sharing, sharing your thoughts on this incredibly uh, worthwhile and important topic. Thank you, Thank you very much.